if you want to take your Bible and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that's where we'll be again this morning. Parental guidance suggested. If you're visiting, this is not a sermon about what it sounds like. Here's the thing. We live in a world where education, for example, is just readily available. And so if you don't know how to do something right now, you can just hop on YouTube and learn. We have entire libraries full of books that are how-to in nature. And not everybody's this way, I'm not this way, but some people can literally buy a book and build a cabin, right? This is just a a crazy part of life. Think of how it was in the medieval ages. If you learned a trade, how did you learn a trade? Did you buy a book? Did you go to school? No, you became an apprentice, right? It was inherently relational, but we live in a world now, like in every other category, where we're constantly stripping the necessity of other people at least in the present tense sense. I know these books are written by folks. These videos are recorded by folks. But we strip the necessity out of other people in accomplishing and growing in whatever it is we want to do. We need to understand that the Christian life is not to be like that. That even though God has given us his very word, the Christian life isn't made better with other people. It's made possible with other people. Okay? And so when we say parental guidance suggested, what we're suggesting here is that the Christian life is to be a family life, and that the way you grow as a Christian is in growing together. Now there's a second thing that this implies that's worth pointing out, and that's the fact that the type of relationships we're talking about this morning have to do with parental relationships. The, The Bible, Christianity... God's word, none of these things are against structure, order, even hierarchy, okay? It doesn't have a problem with there being an alignment with subordinate positions and overarching positions. It recognizes that throughout our life there are really official roles and there are also just casual relationships that may not take titles but do take shapes. And what runs through all of them from top to bottom is parental imagery, Okay, and so if we're going to understand authority, if we're going to understand leadership, if we're going to understand the, uh, the office of pastor or the role of home group leader or what discipleship looks like, if we're going to look at any length and breadth of how relationships look in the church, we have to recognize that parental imagery is woven through every aspect of that. Okay? If, uh, and so what's going on in the church of Corinth as we open our Bibles this morning is that Paul's leadership has been challenged and questioned by these outsiders who have shown up at the Corinthian church and basically presented their credentials and through their standards shown that Paul doesn't actually measure up. Paul, if you're not familiar, is an apostle with a capital A. Okay? So we find apostles in the New Testament who represent churches 
and who travel to carry the letters and do the business of those churches. But then we have another category of apostles, which are those who witnessed the risen Jesus. Okay, this is a large category, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in total who saw Jesus after death and by nature became his witnesses. And then there's the capital A apostles, okay, which would be the 11 disciples Jesus chose. Remember, Judas dies, but the 11 he chooses, Judas's replacement, Matthias and Paul. This category is limited. This category is the upper echelon of Christian authority, those who speak for Jesus to the degree that when we read their words today, they speak for Christ. And so their writings were considered authoritative in God's words, which is why we're taking the time to read a 2,000-year-old letter this morning. Okay. Paul is one of those. So effectively, he's defending his position. He's defending his title this morning. But as he does so, what's striking is that he doesn't flex his muscles and exert his very clear and given authority. The way that he leads and sees his role ends up being through this lens, through the lens of a parent. And so that tempers and it gives shape to and it clarifies the way he sees his relationship with this church he planted in Corinth. And so as we look at this this morning, we need to recognize that these types of relationships should be normative in the Christian church, although they'll look all sorts of things. Like I said, it may be the leader of a home group, it may be a pastor, it may be uh, an actual parent with their children, it may be just as casual as a discipleship relationship. There's things to learn through all of these things. But there's one other thing we need to point out, because for the most part, We need to recognize this morning that we cannot say there's two types of people in this world, parents and children, right? Which I think is how we would have a tendency to hear this sermon is, okay, either I need to find a spiritual parent or I need to be one. But the reason we can't do that is because every parent is a child, okay? Maybe not in the sense of developmentally, but the relationship that's envisioned biblically between parent and child doesn't end when you hit 18, okay? You don't, you don't lose those titles in your life of father and mother. You don't, those relationships don't end even though they evolve. Okay? And so these relationships coexist, and the point is that you kind of need to hear this message this morning through both ears. You need to recognize that God is calling you to love other people in a particular way and to receive love in a particular way, even if you feel one of those more this morning. Okay, so with that being said, let's read our text this morning, beginning in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians in verse 11. I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders, and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls, 
If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Let's pray. Jesus, your words were so clear that authority in the church is not to be as it is in the world, that we're not to exercise our authority and lord it over one another as the nations do. But instead, in the kingdom of God, he who desires to be greatest will be least and the servant of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I pray, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, that you would protect us from people like the detractors in Corinth, who really just want to build up their own reputation uh, at the cost of those they supposedly serve. I pray, God, that you would shape us into the image of our heavenly Father, who longs and loves to be poured out and even to be spent in love for those around us. And I ask, Lord, that we would see you with new eyes afresh this morning, who you are as our Heavenly Father and the call you make to us as your children. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, Paul, in argument here, is kind of finishing off this big section where he's been boasting about who he is because that's what the Corinthians have required. Show us your credentials, Paul. Prove to us you're worth it. Validate your ministry to us, Paul. And he begins this section by saying, that's such a waste of time. That's so crazy. I am who I am. You already know. And on top of that, it's not about me because it's not me who's done the work. And so he says here, I've been a fool. You pushed me to it. He still regrets having to lay out everything he's laid out in the last few chapters. And then he points out the obvious. I shouldn't have had to defend myself because you should have defended me. He says, you know me better than any. You've experienced the full abundance of my ministry. Your church exists because of my hard labor, and now you question if I'm on the inside or the outside? Notice what he says in the second half of verse 11. He says, I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. He says, they don't measure up above and beyond me in any way. And he says, despite the fact that there's nothing to me, I'm nothing. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? You would expect him just to pull out his apostle badge and just be like, let's be clear here. And instead, he loses no confidence in his ministry. He knows who he is. He knows what he's called to. And at the same time, he has no pride in it. He's both sufficient and nothing at all. And this is one of the great threads that runs through all of 2 Corinthians, is that God uses whom he uses and empowers whom he empowers in a way where God gets all the credit. And so this entire model of, I'm a better preacher, I'm a better leader, I deserve more respect, Paul just sees his nonsense. He just refuses to play that game. 
And so he says here, I'm in no way inferior, even though I am nothing. And then he continues, and he says this in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. He says, you want to know I'm an apostle? Do I not have the earmarks? See, Jesus promised specifically for his apostles, the 12 in Mark chapter 16, that as they went out as Jesus' witnesses, that God would confirm their message, confirm that they're representatives of God's because signs and wonders would follow them. Okay? Now, this is not about can God still do miracles today. It's about why did God do miracles in the days of the apostles? And the reason he did it, according to Mark, according to the book of Acts, according to Paul here, was to validate the ministry and the message of the ones that God had chosen. And so Paul just says, have you forgotten what it was like in the beginning? When I planted this church in Corinth, did it not have these earmarks of apostolic ministry? But I want you to notice something that's said here. It says here, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Now, we read that naturally as if Paul did stuff. In the Greek, he puts this in the passive, and it's what we always call the divine passive. Okay? When he says these signs and wonders were performed, he doesn't mean at my hands, not like he was some sort of a magician who said, let me prove to you I'm an apostle and then did a magic trick, okay? He just says, God did these things. It was passive. If Paul was the instrument, is irrelevant. In fact, what's the earliest mark of apostolic ministry in the book of Acts? It's not healings. It's not exorcisms. It's that while these people were speaking, the spirit descended on the audience and the audience began to speak in tongues, a language that they didn't know, praising God and suddenly being, uh, encountering the living God. That was one of the signs and wonders that's being talked about here. But Paul's ministry also had healings in it. It also had the raising of the dead. And even there, he puts it in the passive and he just says, God raised this woman. God brought about this healing. In fact, on one occasion, Paul, as a tent maker, is working and he has a reputation for healing, and somebody just sneaks in and takes his washcloth, the one he uses to wipe his brow, and just steals it, and people are getting healed by the washcloth, okay? But what Paul's point is here is he's like, these were the Jesus-given evidences of apostolic ministry, and they were present among you. They were working among you, and then notice he adds, with utmost patience, now, there's only two options here with that phrase. Either Paul is pointing to the fact that life has been hard for Paul and he stuck it out. I think that's a pretty good reading. Just read chapter 11. Paul has gone through difficulties in Corinth. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that things got so bad in Corinth that he was about to pack his bags and leave. And an angel came and said, Paul, don't be afraid. I have many people in the city. Stick it out. Okay? He needed that level of encouragement in the city of Corinth. And so maybe he's just saying, look, I've suffered a lot, and he's already talked about the fact that that's another mark of being like Jesus. That Jesus has the wounds in his wrists, and Paul has scars all over his body because he follows Jesus. But it also may be ultimately about the stubbornness of the Corinthian believers with utmost patience. I've been in here for the long haul. The fact that this letter is being written 
The fact that Paul hasn't lost his cool is still patient and tremendously loving. The fact that he stoops down and humbles himself before this church and begs them to do the right thing. That's with much patience. And then he asks in verse 13, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Maybe the critics had gone, look, if you look at other churches versus the church in Corinth, Paul hasn't been doing the right thing. You guys are disadvantaged. You haven't experienced the real ministry, and Paul's kept you on the outside. And he just says, in what way have I disadvantaged you except that I didn't charge for my ministry? Except that I refuse to let you compensate me for the ministry I did among you. Now, Paul himself makes clear, even to the Corinthians in his first letter, that it's totally appropriate for those who minister the gospel to make a living by the gospel. But he had given up that right in Corinth. He wanted them to understand that unlike the touring teachers that made up all of their culture, inside and outside the church, this was something different. This wasn't just how Paul made a living. This was the gift of life. And so he gave up this right. He laid it aside to make a point so that they could know that he had no ulterior motives. And surprise, surprise, these outsiders come in and say, this is evidence he has ulterior motives. Right? Because when there's, when there's enemies, when there's slanderers, it doesn't matter what you do, it's the wrong move. And so he just is trying to get them to balance and to understand, to look with both eyes at the real situation. But in doing so, he also lays his heart bare and explains the way ministry is supposed to work. And he does it both as a final desperate attempt for them to understand how he feels about them, and to invalidate the ministry of these supposed super apostles who have come in and demand something very different. And he does it, did you notice? He does it in parental imagery. Notice what he says. He says, verse 14, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I most, will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What does he say? He says, I'm coming to you again, and I'm not going to change my posture. I'm not going to change my decision. You're going to encounter the same old Paul, which means I'm not going to take your money. And he says, the reason is because I don't want your money, I want you. He says, the reason is because I see myself as a parent and you as my children, and this is the way that relationship works. Now, when he says here, uh, children aren't obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children, he means this in a very limited way, okay? Because there is an appropriate aspect of children providing for their parents, especially in old age. Writing to Timothy, Paul says this. He says that anyone who does not take care of their own family is worse than a non-believer. Do you know the context of that statement? It's because there's families in the church who have widowed mothers and they're letting the church as a whole from their budget take care of these women instead of taking care of them himself. He says, that's not right. Jesus said the same thing. He said to the Pharisees of his day, you take what is owed to taking care of your parents and you sanctify it and say, it's Corbin, it's a gift of God, I'll give it to God instead. And he says, why do you honor the traditions of men and deny the word of God? What word of God? 
one of the ten. One of the ten commandments given in the book of Exodus and repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, honor your father and mother. Jesus says that includes the gratitude-oriented caring for them in their old age. But that's not Paul's focus here. His focus is the bare, naked nature of the parent-child relationship, which is for the sake of the child, which is a giving and not a taking relationship. Right? This is why parents never present a bill to their children. Maybe that needs to be repeated. Don't present a bill to your children. Okay? Don't try and teach them a lesson so that they understand how you care. I heard a story uh, just last night in my reading from another sermon where a child had come and presented a bill to his mother, raking the lawn, or $10, taking out the trash, $2. Right? It was an itemized bill, and at the bottom of it was a total. And so the mom wrote back one and said, caring for you when you're sick, nothing. Feeding you, nothing. Right? It's not just an imbalanced relationship. It really is a different relationship. Okay? That's how Paul sees his relationship here. And so what he says is, I'm not expecting you to save up for me. I'm expecting to be spent for you. He says the relationship, the lens through which I view you, is a parental relationship. And remember here, Paul is speaking from the ultimate level of leadership in the Christian church. Okay? A true pope, if you will. One of the 13 initial top-line representatives who speak for God. And the lens through which he views that leadership and that authority is this parental one, And he says, it's not about the privileges. It's not about what you owe me. He says, it's a parental relationship. It's a giving of children. And so when we look at this this morning, we see basically three marks of parental love. I'd like to look at each of them in turn. The first one we see again there in verse 14. He says, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I'll not be a burden for I seek not what is yours, but you. Parental love is for the sake of the beloved. And what they desire is that relationship and not the fringe benefits of that relationship. He says, I'm not after what is yours. Okay. Now, that's so different than the leadership structures we find anywhere else that we tend to import those models into what we do as a church. Okay. So, for example... Your boss at work does not seek you, but what is yours? He may not be after your money, but he's after your talents and your abilities. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's the bare naked relationship of the workplace. I will exchange the goods I have for the goods you have. Now, I hope with all my heart that your relationships in the office are better than that, but that's the baseline. That's the way they're supposed to be. That's how they function. But the parental relationship, as we've already seen, is not that way. And Paul takes the greatest level of leadership, and that's how he sees it. What Paul desires is not their respect, not their applause, not their abilities, not their money, but them. It's love. Right? That's, that's simply a definition of love. Love is when you desire a person and not the person's stuff. Okay? It's why we get a little bit uncomfortable when people bring up a prenuptial. Right? It's like, 
Is that really the most important thing in this conversation? This is true of the highest level of authority, but it should also be true of pastors. And the truth is, it's not hard to find other models where you say, what is the primary nature of this relationship? What does this televangelist or this great celebrity pastor want most from me? What is it? At the biggest level, the one that we facepalm about all the time is money. Just send me another, just give me a little bit more. We have these pastors who live in self-built palaces as if that's normative and appropriate. Paul's life was different. He wasn't accruing a bunch of physical wealth because he'd planted so many churches. Paul's ministry was literally worldwide. And his bank was empty. Why? Because his ministry was literally worldwide and it cost to run that ministry and he paid the cost himself. But this stuff happens in smaller teams in leadership too. Sometimes volunteers and even staff and, and just any form of leadership team in Christian ministry inside the church or in other organizations, the way they run becomes not this. And so what the leader is most is interested in is your abilities, your output. Not for Paul. If you find yourself in a position of leadership in the church, it is for the sake of those you serve and not for the sake of the mission. To grow those people under you is the greatest thing you can do for the sake of the mission. Paul's heart is for the Corinthian church. And what he wants is not what they can do for him, but him. I understand this as a parent. Okay? This imagery is especially helpful as a parent because think of young children. I'll tell you what, I have five kids and it wasn't to secure my retirement. Every one of my kids, in and of themselves, is sufficient for my love. And that love is not questioned by their output or their behavior or their response to me. It may be tested, but in its testing it is always proven. When parents say to their children, there is nothing you can do to make, you love, make me love you less, I believe it. I know it personally. It doesn't mean that their decisions don't grieve or even make angry, but the anger is for the sake of them. Paul looks at this tremendously messed up church and they still think that Paul has some sort of ambition that isn't just them. And so he just comes out and he says it and it's so beautiful. I'm, I don't want your things, I want you. That's because it's parental love. And not only should you be this in other people's lives, but you need this in your own life. And I don't know why, ladies and gentlemen, but the church is obsessed, just like the church in Corinth was, with taking a beating from their leadership for Jesus, becoming a cog in the machine for the sake of the mission, finding a leader, and basically what this church wants, they want people like these inside, you know, these, these interlopers who have come in. They want ones who will demand to be treated like an authority. 
They want ones who will take an exorbitant salary. And somehow they that and applaud that and go, that's the right way. And Paul, you're going the wrong way by serving us so freely. This is not, this is not a Corinthian problem. It's not one psychologically that I can necessarily explain, but I can definitely observe. There's something sadistic in the heart of all of us that says we can be proud of an authority that takes advantage of us. Listen, pastors are called to teach, but that's not all. The office of pastor is primarily relational. And we've got to get away from this model that says, yes, that person is my pastor because I'm proud of the things he has to say. Yes, this person is my leader because I send them 995 every two weeks. It's just, it, the question of who is your spiritual parents is who's pouring into you? Who longs for you? Now, I say this with full and utter understanding of my own incapabilities and weakness in these things. But this is the ideal. This is the model. This orients the entire way we as a church seek to approach ministry. And when we say no to one thing and yes to another, this should be our guideline. What do the relationships look like? They should look like family. They're not self-interested. Jesus talked about self-interested ministry, and he did it in the imagery of shepherding, which, by the way, is where we get our word pastor. And he says there's two types. There's shepherds and there's hirelings. What's the difference? The shepherd is in it for the sheep. The hireling is in it for the paycheck. The hireling comes, and he does the work, but he does it, why? For the sake of the money. And when things get rough... When a wolf is present and seeks to tear apart the sheep, he runs because he can always say, this isn't worth it. Now, this isn't just convicting to me. It should be convicting to you. Because the easiest relationships to have in our life are the ones that benefit us, the ones that have fringe benefits. They're usually not the grounds of the relationship, but we can enjoy them so much that we choose those relationships over others. Jesus challenges that. He says, when you throw a party, don't invite those who are wealthy enough to throw a party and invite you in return. Instead, invite the lame and the blind and the maimed and those who are poor enough that they can never repay you. He's not just talking about you know, how to win friends and influence people. This isn't just a statement about party. It's a statement about how love works. And love, at great cost to self, loves. And so love is not self-interested. And the relationships we need to embody and pursue in the church are these types of ones that are oriented towards the weaker member. The second thing is, Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. This is just the other side of the coin. It's hardly a second point, but it is a second point. Love is sacrificial. Parental love is sacrificial. I remember being at a youth retreat when I was really young, and the only thing I remember being said was that babies suck. (laughs) 
And now that I've had five of my own and taken care of countless other people's children, I know it to be true. That's all babies can do is take. It's not that there aren't enjoyments we derive from babies, but none of that is intentional. None of them think, I'm going to smile right now and make my parents' day. It's just, I'm gassy, right? None of them think, how can I give my parents the best day possible they need? They think, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired. Why haven't you changed me yet? I'm so bored right now, right? We're all born so self-focused, and it's the, it's the job of a parent to cater to that, to lean into that. Now, hopefully, also to help them grow out of that, help them see beyond their own stomach, sure. But there's no greater sacrificial love than parental love. And I want to be clear here. Paul speaks of himself as a father, but he's not afraid to engage with motherly imagery. What Paul says to the church in Corinth here is not unique. This is the lens through which he sees all the churches he's planted. Listen to the words in Thessalonica here, in 1 Thessalonians, speaking to another church that he's planted. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 9. Remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. And then jump down. Uh, sorry, jump up to verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So, listen to this, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. He says, I desired you so much that I gave you not just the good news, but my very self. And notice he does that in maternal imagery of a nursing mother. There's no greater picture of giving of yourself than nursing. Where you're really, literally taking your own life, and it costs to your own life, giving it to another. I can remember an occasion, and I really should have asked Brittany before I shared this, but here we go. I can remember an occasion just after Everly was born, where Brittany had a nasty flu, and Everly was so young she was still nursing. And so my wife was literally laying in the bath- on the bathroom floor between vomiting, and Everly woke up to nurse. And Everly was a breastfed baby. She wasn't formula fed. There was no other way to feed her in this time. And I literally had to bring my daughter into the bathroom and lay her next to my exhausted wife and let her nurse. Now, if you're a mother, you get that. You've done that. You've been there. And it's not just about breastfeeding. That's what a parent's life is. Guys, I haven't slept more than two hours at a time in 10 years. Now, not all of that is because my kids actively wake me up, but the math lines up, 
And to tell you the truth, on those occasions where my child has been the sickest or the most needy or the most costly, when I've been up in the middle of the night with some big thing going on the next day and I'm just rocking them to sleep and my arms are aching, I am the happiest I've ever been. I always think to myself, it's not the only thought I have, but I always think to myself, what an incredible privilege to invest like this in another person. That's the heart of Paul for his church. It's, he doesn't just say, I'm willing to spend. He doesn't just say, I'll put my money where my mouth is. He doesn't say, I'll pick up my own plane ticket to get me on the mission field. Although he clearly says that, he says, he says I not only want to spend, but to be spent for you. One of the most beautiful things in ministry, and I mean this in the most casual sense, of when you know you're serving another person for the sake of Jesus, is leaving it all on the field. And as somebody who's tremendously introverted and weaker than most of you, I know a little bit about this. I know what it feels like to lay in the dark and just regen and be so content. Parental love is so sacrificing. And whatever your ordered relationship is, whether you're leading a team or a home group, whether you plan to be a missionary or plant a church or become a pastor, whether you're a parent and you're not merely the physical parent of your children, but also by nature being a Christian, the spiritual parent of your children, or even if it's more casual and you've just brought someone along to help them in their faith, someone who's a little bit newer to Christ, someone who's a little bit fresher to the gospel and you're just investing in them, it's self-sacrificing investment. That's what it's to look like. One of the greatest marks of ministry, or one of the greatest marks of a minister of Christ, is who foots the bill. And we can all get caught up in this model that says, if somebody wants to come and be with me and learn with me, this is what it looks like. And we, look, we lay the cost out in the sand. We say, here I am. Here's what I'm doing. They're welcome to come. But we don't ask if they have what it takes to get to that place. We just go on with our own thing. To use shepherd imagery again, Jesus commends the shepherd who leaves the 99 who are secure and goes after the one who is lost. And I don't know why, but you're probably like me. I always picture that in a storm. Don't you? Because there's got to be some reason the sheep is lost, and so the weather is not good. You know, it's not like, oh, okay, great, I'll take a vacation and look for the sheep while I'm out there, right? It's, it's at night, it's dangerous, it's distant, it's difficult. And he rejoices when he finds the sheep, and he lays it on his own shoulders, and he brings it home, and he throws a celebration out of his own pocketbook. That's what ministry looks like. That's what it should look like in our lives. Christians should be falling over one another to pick up the check. Paul can't win either way. And so he, he reminds them, I've never taken a cent from you, but already there's an argument that says, yes, but he has sent other people for this big collection for Jerusalem. He's double dipping. 
He's clearly taking all the advantage and all the respect of not taking a dime, and then he takes up this offering, offering and he's just going to shave a little off the top. That's why he goes on and he says this in verse, uh, verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. I pretended not to take a paycheck and then I just stole out of the offering box. And he says this in verse 17. He said, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? He says, did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? He says, even when I haven't been present and I've sent others to you, did they take up an offering? No, everyone who worked for Paul and with Paul and interacted with the Corinthian church took on Paul's policy. Notice he says that they uh, acted in the same spirit and then they took the same steps. This is literally in the Greek, had the same footsteps. The last point we need to understand this morning is that children look like their parents. And so Paul points to Titus and the other brother and he says, aren't they just like me? Didn't they follow in my same policy? Don't they have the same heart? I mean, Titus doesn't know the church in Corinth until Paul sends him. And then we find out that he's developed this heart and he says, you've got to send me back. You need to hear that for what it is. Corinth is hostile territory. Titus says, send me back into the battlefield. I need to love these people. It's crazy. But it sounds like Paul. But really, I'm just bringing up this point, which is a constant one that the New Testament makes, that children imitate their parents, to widen out our viewpoint and understand that parental imagery in the Bible is controlled by our Heavenly Father. And that the reason Paul is a good parent to the Corinthian church is because he's a child of the living God. And so we see this pattern from Paul to Titus, and this is the pattern he wants to conform in the church in Corinth as well. He wants them to stop thinking about themselves so when he does come, they can support his ministry to another church in Spain. But they're not there yet. They're not ready yet. But that's his heart, that they would become like him. But this is the thing we have to understand. When we read these words and Paul says, for I desire not what is yours but you, that is the heart of God for us. God is not interested in your money. He hasn't come to you or called you because of your ability. You aren't the missing piece in his collection. It's not like Pokemon. He wants you. Nothing demonstrates this greater than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Where God takes on flesh and blood to willingly and fully spill that blood for those who killed him. For those who deserve the punishment that he bears. Remember, don't ever forget, the cross is not just God's greatest act of love. It's also humanity's greatest act of rebellion our greatest act of enmity against God. God doesn't want your gifts, your talents, your tremendous intelligence. He wants you. 
And then listen to the second thing Paul says again in verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's just another way of communicating the gospel. That's what Jesus was. It was not only necessary that Jesus died because that's how deep the human condition goes. It wasn't just necessary that someone pay the punishment that we all deserve. It was willing. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. Think of the words that he said to his disciples the night before he died. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. When we pray to God as Heavenly Father, it's this, our Father who provides all we need. Our Father whose greatest desire is not our accomplishments, not even our worship and our praise. It's us. And it's the one who demonstrates that tremendous disinterested love, that's what the old theologians used to call it, love not for, for your own sake, not for the benefits of love, disinterested love. He demonstrates that great disinterested love in the cross of Jesus Christ and says, here is everything you need. Out of my body, partake of my nature, nurse at my breast. In my death, find life. If you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that's a clarification. I hope you understand that God doesn't want anything from you as much as he wants to give you something. That when we talk about a relationship with God, we're not talking about what things are you going to do for God, but do you understand, understand what God has done for you? In every other aspect of life, obedience and repentance, ministry and utilizing your gifts, the parable of the talents, every other aspect of that is actually for your sake. Conforming you into the image of the father who adopted you. Making you his child. And as I said earlier, if you recognize and long to be a parent like Paul, the best way is to become a better child of God. Paul knows what this love looks like, not just because it was modeled in Jesus, but because he's received it from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are Christians this morning, I just want to lead us in collective repentance for making our relationships inside the church and outside, about us, about what are we getting out of this, about is this beneficial for me, does this affirm my true identity, does this serve me and my ambitions. Just forgive us. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that you came for us. 
You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have secured our salvation so we no longer have to. You have emboldened and enabled us to be your witness and have empowered us for righteousness. You have given us your very nature in your Holy Spirit who resides in these bodies of flesh to shape us into your will. You have given us great and precious promises. You have given us your presence and said that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So I pray, Lord, that you would twist our selfish hearts and reshape them into the image of self-giving. Make us imitators of our beloved Father as dear children, as Paul prays for us in Ephesians 5. And that we would begin to pour out and to give and that we would find, like Paul did, the joy in that, that we would gladly spend and be spent for those that you've called us to pour into. And I pray for those who are not Christians here, God. I pray that they would see your love this morning and they, that they would respond. That they would recognize that you're not calling them this morning to offer a part of your life or one Sunday morning a week to attend church, you will settle for nothing less than all of them. But that's appropriate, and it's even joyful because you gave all of you first. We praise you this morning for who you are. We thank you, Lord, both for being our Heavenly Father knowing our needs before we ask, and forgiving us in our life people who have demonstrated this Christ-like love to us, who when we were not deserving, in long seasons of not responding, when even there was hostility on our parts, consistently and stably and sacrificially loved us. I pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to those who are downstream for us that you're calling us to pour out into as well. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.